You are listening to episode 39. Today, I talked to Dr. Gita Lal, an endocrine surgeon who's focused her career now on surgical ergonomics and how we need to treat ourselves like elite athletes. She has a tremendous amount of useful information. I look forward to you listening to the episode. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome. I have a very special guest here today. This is Dr. Gita Lal. She is an endocrine surgeon and has had a very interesting career path. And she has a lot of information that I think that we need to know. If those of you out there are like me and get a little older and things are hurting a little bit more, or maybe you're young and worried about things hurting, Dr. Lal is here to talk to us about one of her passion projects that has now turned into a pretty big deal. So Dr. Lal, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey. Sure. First of all, uh, Dr. Ortiz, thank you so much for having me here on the Boss podcast today. Yes, as you pointed out, my journey has been uh, rather interesting, especially recently. Um, A few years ago, I developed uh, some MSK pain, specifically jaw pain, which then kind of radiated to my neck and shoulders. And um, I'd had about of it before a couple of smaller episodes and I'd been given the diagnosis of myofascial uh, temporomandibular joint pain but this time all the conservative measures weren't helping and it just seemed to get worse um, to cut a long story short I what I didn't know at that time and that I do know now is that a big 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 contributing factor to that pain that I was having was actually something that the physical therapists call a forward head posture. And I had held that for many, many years um, in my career as an endocrine surgeon. And the net result of that forward head posture is that the weight of the head at the top of the C-spine increases proportionately to the flexion that you have, the forward flexion. And so essentially, if you flex by 10 to 15 degrees, you double the weight of your head at the top of your C-spine. And then if you add to that, the fact that many surgeons like myself will wear loops and uh, headlamps, you can imagine what that does uh, to the loading of the C-spine. And and that had essentially, you know, over many years and many compensations of different injuries resulted in my symptom complex. I have to admit, as a female surgeon experiencing these musculoskeletal pains, it did sort of stir up again, you know, those feelings of imposter syndrome that I'd felt off and on during my career. You know, what is it? I mean, I don't see anyone else complaining about it. Is it just me? Can I not hack surgery anymore? You know, what's wrong with me? But I was a scientist, and so I delved into the literature, and I realized that I wasn't alone about you know, if you look at large meta-analyses, about 68 to 70% of surgeons report pain from operating. And it's not just pain, they actually report fatigue, numbness, and stiffness. And when I looked into the common types of injury, three things were, you know, sort of the top hitters. They're all degenerative type diseases, and it's C-spine, lower back, and shoulder, right? No surprise to any of us working in surgery. 
What was even more shocking to me though, was that you know, we don't typically consider ourselves as a profession prone to musculoskeletal injury. But if you actually look at the numbers, the prevalence of uh, neck and back pain in surgeons is higher, almost double than some series uh, that report you know, using similar questionnaires uh, than, than prevalence rate in uh, construction workers. So that's really food for thought. We are actually- it's shocking. Yeah, we are actually as a profession, you know, have really high numbers and high rates of work-related musculoskeletal injury. Oh, I completely agree. And I think a lot of times we don't even necessarily see it coming, you know, or we tell ourselves, just like you said too, like, you know, just tough it out and, you know, just keep working and everything's fine until all of a sudden it's not fine. And, you know, we were talking before we started recording about the extent of training that we have gotten in ergonomics, which is stand up straight, the end. <laughs> Pretty much. That was my training too. So <laughs> I, I, uh, you know, I recalled exactly that, you know, why hadn't anyone told us about these rates of injuries before, you know, and what we could do to mitigate things. And I know this started off as, you know, a personal interest and then it turned into, you know, I know you told about the Twitter um, interest group and then take us how this has kind of exploded. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it has exploded beyond anything that I or the rest of the founding members of the uh, ergonomics, surgical ergonomics interest group um, uh, probably could ever have conceived. So as I was going through the treatments and paces with my own physical therapists, I wondered why why they didn't teach us about what we could do to mitigate injury uh, in training. Just like you said, all we heard was um, stand up straight, come on, stand up straight. And so the thought about having uh, or developing an ergonomics curriculum was uh, uh, swirling in my head, the seed was planted and I worked to develop you know, just a basic curriculum with my own treating physical therapist um, at the University of Iowa. And we ended up publishing that. A few other conversations over Twitter chats here and there. And uh, I remember dropping on my own Twitter feed a message saying, I'd like to start an interest group about surgical ergonomics. You know, please drop your name in the comments if you're interested. And several people, you know, dropped their, their uh, contacts, various uh, specialties. Some people I knew from my own specialty, which by the way, has the highest rates, one of the highest rates of MSK injury, endocrine surgeons uh, and EMT surgeons do. Um, we uh, started meeting over Zoom. It was September, 2020. And uh, all of us there had at least had some uh, experience with our uh, own MSK injuries. But what was different about the interest group other than just a group of surgeons sharing their injuries is that we actually had some experts from uh, industrial engineering, ergonomists and human factors who had actually spent a lot of time studying surgeons and their injuries and were actually doing research in that area. And that was kind of that crucial realization that, you know, we know there's a problem and there are ways to fix it because you know, we strides have been made in industrial engineering uh, using ergonomics principles. We just haven't thought about it and brought those same principles and teaching to surgery. Mm -hmm. So our monthly meetings then turned into, well, how do we how do we become an entity with some uh, 
power to advocate, to be able to get funding for research, to be able to develop curricula, et cetera. And I think we decided that um, we, because ergonomics issues transcended specialties, we needed to be our own entity rather than be a part of any other um, surgical society. And so uh, the Society for Surgical Ergonomics got 501c3 status, thanks to one of our founding members and now treasurer, Dr. Phil Haig and uh, efforts of other people in the group. And we officially went live as a society last November. Uh, so November, 2021, which is when we launched our Twitter handle uh, as the society rather than the interest group. And what a phenomenal journey that you've had because you know a lot of times we look around and see something that needs to change. And you know, in your particular case, you had a symptom and you realized that it was difficult for people to identify what it was. And then you realize it was from all the ergonomics that could be improved. So then you found other people and you created an interest group and then a society and now soon to be, you know, symposium and as well as speaking uh, and a curriculum for residents. I mean, what a phenomenal journey of just saying, I see something and, you know, taking that idea and really expanding this um, for the benefit of surgery. And this is really just a, a great example of the power that we have and a lot of times there's so much that we feel like we don't have power over, but this is like such a tremendous example of what we can do with just like you said, a couple interested people. You know, you're absolutely right, uh, Amy. That's, a, you know, this is exactly an example of a grassroots effort, right? Recognizing that there's a problem. You're absolutely right that a group of interested people can make a difference, and uh, sometimes, you know, that's all that it takes. But I have to give credit a few other people and circumstances because it's not a lone journey, right? I alone could not have done it. We needed a group. And then I think what was fortuitous is that the timing is right. The pandemic and the resulting consequences on uh, and focus on healthcare provider wellness and burnout, uh, especially physicians, is receiving a focus that it hasn't before. And this became kind of another area where, as you said, you know, we can actually make tangible change and improve the lives and well-being of surgeons and surgical trainees. Because if we step back and take a look, you know, what, what is the effect of poor ergonomics, right? Pain is one thing, injuries is another, right? But it's more far, you know, it has more far reaching consequences. So for the provider itself, it's a loss of productivity, loss of income, potentially, especially if they have a career ending injury and can't work as a surgeon anymore. Uh, and that happens, you know, of the surgeons who develop symptoms, you know, about 10% or so will end up in that situation. Loss of uh, income, not only for themselves, but for the hospital. It actually also affects, um, the quality of care we provide. That was interesting to me, you know, coming from this quality and safety leadership background, that um, something called surgical stress effects, which has actually been studied by one of our uh, uh, urology members of the Society of Surgical Ergonomics, Dr. Christian Trouser. And we can understand that the outcome of a particular procedure or treatment that we're doing for the patient is, developed, is de dependent on a number of factors. And one of them is the surgeon. And it's not just the surgeon's technical skill, but those non-technical skills, right? And then those things are things like teamwork, communication, situational awareness. 
we all know, any of us who work in quality know that the biggest sort of root cause identified in many safety events is, is failure of communication and situational awareness, right? And lack of situational awareness. Well, you, it's pretty easy to see if a surgeon is in pain, there's gonna be breakdown in those non-technical skills and how that could contribute to, to the quality of care uh, that we provide and the safety of our patients. The other th piece of that is of course that surgeons reported in, in many surveys that they actually take their symptoms into account before deciding what sort of approach they might offer a patient for surgery. If a particular approach is going to cause them more pain, they might do things a little differently. You know, it has broad and far-reaching consequences. I mean, poor ergonomics. And so it's important not just for uh, us surgeons because we're the ones suffering the pain, but it's important for hospitals and organizational leaderships to take note as well and um, make this kind of an integral part of um, solutions that they think about for uh, physician and provider wellness programs. And I know that a lot of times this is a, a push for robotics to improve ergonomics. And are you seeing a lot of the same um, ergonomics problems with robotic surgeries? Do they provide just different ones or um, has, how has that influenced some of the work that you're doing? You know, that's a really good question because as we know, you know, that's exactly the reason that ergonomics is touted, sorry, um, robotics is touted for improved ergonomics. And in fact, um, when you look at the data that's out there, robotic surgery does offer some ergonomic benefits because uh, and again, I actually should say there's a disclaimer here. I'm, I don't do any robotic surgery, so I'm just going by the literature and speaking with our society members that, um, number one, you're sitting down, right? You're at a console. You're not standing in awkward positions of the patient. The robotics certainly make access easier, especially if you're doing deep pelvic surgery in urology, colorectal surgery, et cetera. If you look at the actual sort of data in terms of frequency of, of pain and other symptoms, cervical pain, back pain, et cetera, are lower. But you see other injuries that you don't see as higher rate that you do in open or, or straight laparoscopic surgery, which is more injuries to the wrists and hands or more symptoms related to the wrists and hands from spending that time at consoles. And in fact, there are studies to show that you know, there are ways that surgeons sit at these consoles, whereas there are ways that an ergonomist might recommend that you sit at a console. So even with robotic surgery, there is some value um, added to paying attention to posture and setup of your chair, the console height, etc. So uh, while there are obvious ergonomic advantages, I would say it's not a panacea and you actually do need to have uh, attention to ergonomics, even uh, in various robotic platforms. Yes, and having um, adopted the robotic approach, I would completely agree with you. I, I felt like there's some things that are better, but it's certainly not the be all end all that, that it could be. And that it's probably just a lot that we just don't know yet of, of how to improve. So take us through like advise people to start with who are just now starting to pay attention to the um, ergonomics of their the job. Like, let's say that, you know, you're meeting someone for the first time, what are ways that you would have them start? Sure, that's actually probably the most frequently asked questions and for me. So it, 
no matter what meeting I am at, you know, I will be taken aside and somebody will say, okay, like this is what's happening right now. What can I do? So the first thing I'll say is you're not alone. And in fact, these injuries occur, uh, I call them, they're, they're gonna be micro traumas over the years, right? If you remember as a resident, you, you did hurt as a resident and a fellow, but you went to bed and the next morning you were better. But as you get into your 40s and 50s or you know, 10 plus years in practice, okay? Somewhere between five to 15 years is where you will sort of hit this wall where these micro traumas add up and you're in pain all the time. So rest doesn't alleviate things. You know, that prophylactic ibuprofen or naproxen isn't helping anymore. Um, and and uh, there are absolutely things that people can do, you know, starting off the bat. Before I get into that, I will say that if we're going to move the needle on ergonomics, we have to think about it like, for example, I guess a Swiss cheese model in quality and safety, right? Or the Swiss cheese model from quality and safety that was adapted, let's say for the pandemic, right? So in, in preventing infection uh, from uh, and getting COVID-19, there wasn't one single silver bullet, right? Despite all the developments, all the knowledge gained in the last two or three years, there are still there is still a layered approach. There's individual approach, and then there's societal and organizational approach. And this ranges from things like masking to getting vaccinated to having mask mandates, having social distancing, having lockdowns. You know, in the in the more extreme and and kind of the whole societal concern. So I want people to think about mitigating or preventing or treating ergonomic injuries or MSK related uh, or ergonomics related MSK injuries as this sort of layered approach. And to remember that as a surgeon, as an individual ourselves, we can do certain things, but the def the very definition of ergonomics is the interaction of people with their environment, right? The study of that and how to improve that interaction to reduce injury. So we can't isolate ourselves and, and not think about the um, equipment that we work with, um, the environment in which we work in, which is the operating room, and uh, all the things that need to be changed in that regard. But let me come back to sort of what can an individual surgeon do? Number one, pay attention to your symptoms. You are not alone. It's not in your head. This is real, and there is a real biologic basis for why you're having these symptoms. We don't obey ergonomics principles. Our surgical culture doesn't you know, allow us to take breaks or talk about our pain. Um, I mentioned the instruments like headlamps and loops, they're all heavy. They were all you know, surgical staplers, especially for women surgeons uh, and hand grip. You know, instruments were designed to fit the majority of surgeons, not every surgeon. The OR has never been in, you know, traditionally been in an, an all-inclusive environment. Uh, other thing is that, you know, when we were told stand up straight, outside the OR, at least we had some protection from ergonomic injuries. So now not only are we subject to the stresses in the operating room, but we actually, because of the digitization of our non-operative work, we're charting in EMRs when we're not in the OR, we're responding to things on our phones and both messages. And all of that adds also ergonomic injury that office workers suffer on top of our intraoperative injuries. So we have to pay attention. So first of all, acknowledging that there is an issue 
and then uh, looking at ways to mitigate it. So how do we start to mitigate uh, these things? I mentioned the framework. The first part of the framework would be an education, meaning you know, educating staff surgeons as well as residents. And that was the impetus for developing sort of the curriculum at Iowa, but then the society creating a score, a module for the score curriculum for general surgery residents. And, and the components there are to think about the positioning in the operating room. So there are published best practices about how to stand and um, position the table height, et cetera, uh, for open surgery. There are best practices for laparoscopic surgery uh, in terms of table height, monitor distance, um, you know, where to place the foot pedal, et cetera. Uh, and also, as I mentioned earlier, for robotic surgery. So getting familiar with those positioning. If you're using adjuncts, think about using the lightest model of headlamp available uh, and loops available. When you're getting fitted for loops, really pay attention and ask about the angle of declination. The angle of declination is where the magnifying part is actually fit into the glasses part of the loops. And the steeper that angle, the less you have to bend your neck forward to look through the loops. In fact, the most extreme example of that would be the operating microscope, right? Where you're looking straight ahead, but you're actually seeing the field that is perpendicular, right? Bottom uh, at sort of straight 90 degrees down. In fact, there are loops now that come close to that. They're called prismatic loops. So you, you can get you know, steeper angles of declination, which means you can keep your head straighter. Loop manufacturers have caught on to that and they actually will advertise that. Um, when you, are, um, when you don't wanna use a headlamp, you could use substitute equipment. For example, for some of my thyroid surgeries that um, we started using self-retaining retractors that were lighted. Hmm? Um, sitting when standing, you know, when you have to move patients, I think a lot of us suffer our first bout of back pain during residency when we're asked to move patients. And we, get, we, we are asked to do that without ever getting any training in safe patient handling, right? So learning about that. Um, if you don't have it, uh, requesting or asking for floor mats, anti-fatigue mats, we have them in our homes. They're used in industry. Uh, there is data to show that it reduces uh, at least um, fatigue and lower back pain. The data is not great, but it's a low-cost intervention that might have some benefit for some people. So why not try it? Um, we all hear about, you know, uh, long, sur long surgical days and the importance of wearing support hose. Footwear is more important, whether, also very important. If you wear clogs or uh, running shoes, you know, find something that's comfortable and provides good arch support. Most ergonomists though, I will tell you, recommend running shoes with, you know, custom inserts if you need them and replacing them every so often so that you have, you know, a good support at the arch level, especially because you're standing on concrete, right? For all those lengths of time. So those are simple things that we can do with the things that we are dealing with. The one other thing that is a unique concept, or I should say uh, an alien concept to surgeons is actually taking breaks. Breaks are a well-recognized method for uh, mitigating injury in industry, in industrial engineering. It just hasn't caught on in surgery. There is actually data out of the Human Factors uh, Lab at Mayo, headed by Dr. Susan Hallbeck, who has done a, a number of elegant studies about uh, taking breaks and combining those with 
exercises to reverse the forward head posture every so often during surgery. And um, uh, they've actually developed an app that the society, you can find more information about it on the Society of Surgical Ergonomics website and how you can become a surgeon champion to start instituting some breaks, you know, during our work days. That way, instead of us just getting irritated, if you're like me, that, you know, anesthesiology or nursing is taking a break at the most inopportune times, maybe all of us could take the same, you know, a short break at the same time and reverse our bad posture. And uh, it has an added advantage. It's not just important for the physical ergonomics. There is a whole branch that we haven't even touched on called cognitive ergonomics, right? So it breaks that um, focus, that prolonged focus that also contributes to fatigue and really makes the operation more efficient. In fact, the biggest criticism of breaks is that, you know, well, it's going to prolong operating room time and operating room time is money, et cetera. But if you actually look at the data, uh, it does not prolong operating time because you actually are more efficient with the breaks. I was going to ask you, how long are these breaks? And you already mentioned there's, you know, some exercises that you could do, but, you know, can you give us an example of what a break would look like? Uh, sure, absolutely. So, you know, um, there are different definitions. So a break could be a five minute break every 30 minutes. Micro break could be 20 second breaks every 20 to 30 minutes, you know, for any surgery that's more than two hours. That's, those are the studies that have been published. The specific one that I'm referring to out of Dr. Hallbeck's lab and from which the app was created, it's actually set um, at taking a, a 90 second break every 45 minutes. And it comes with a nice timer and um, uh, you can actually adjust the time. If it's not an opportune time, you can actually snooze it like an alarm. Uh, but the idea is that, uh, you know, every so often you need at least enough of a break, you know, a 20 second break might be too short. You need enough of a break to be able to just reverse the posture that you have been holding. Even if you don't go through the entire exercises, those muscles need to uh, uh, realign before you head back or, or before you start operating again. So these exercises can be done while you're scrubbed. They're just a way of kind of, you know, um, stretching out your pectorals and your neck so that uh, you break the posture that surgeons are most likely to hold, which is that forward head posture. There are also exercises that you can do in between cases. And those are to build up muscles that uh, are weakened uh, or and stretch muscles that are tightened by this forward head posture. So. Perfect. Now, I know you told me um, that this is not on the surgicalergonomics.com site. Where is this app that you're talking about? This is on the Society of Surgical Ergonomics um, org. So that is the nonprofit, right? That's the society. The surgicalergonomics.com that you're referring to is actually my, my own personal website from um, an entrepreneur side. Um, I've uh, launched a business as a speaker, um, uh, speaking about surgical ergonomics and all the things we've been talking about today, uh, as well as the Society of Surgical Ergonomics. But I also provide coaching uh, for practicing surgeons, uh, along with an ergonomist partner, we do it by uh, Zoom. And uh, it's really an individualized assessment. We do it video-based and uh, provide some, um, if you will, rather than general, more specific uh, 
uh, interventions for the type of surgery that the individual is doing, uh, what their specific injuries are, um, and um, sort of making them familiar with best practices uh, in what they're doing, and then just providing ongoing support. The ergonomist also provides recommendations um, for what to do uh, with workspaces, right? So it's not just the operating room, right? It's also the workspaces outside the OR paying attention to your office setup at home where you do your charting at, and, and in your office uh, at work uh, and hobbies because um, whatever you're doing for relaxation, if you're holding uh, awkward postures there too, it just exacerbates injuries. So it's kind of a holistic assessment and um, recommendations uh, on the coaching side. So that's why you won't find the breaks, et cetera, there. That's my entrepreneur side. Got it. And what does that typically look like? So someone, let's say someone hires you, what is the, the commitment that they have for that? And how long um, does it take till they see results? And, uh, and yet another question of how long do you think this will extend their career? Is this something that you imagine will extend their career? Um, I think it will. I don't know. There aren't any other ergonomic coaches or surgical ergonomics coaches yet. I'm sure there will be more and there should be more. For me, I guess, as my dad would say, it would be the proof of the pudding is in the eating, right? So at 45, I contemplated quitting my career. The pain got so bad that I was constantly asking myself, can I really do this? How long do I have? You know, what, what am I doing? And then here I am a few years later, still working at the same pace, minus headlamps and loop, right? Loops. I gave up my loops. But I'm able to maintain a full-time surgical practice and it has been coming back from those injuries. So it's certainly possible. It's not easy. It does take time, but it's certainly possible. And I do share my story with my clients, whatever they get from the website, but also other details. In terms of a commitment, uh, what we do right now is we suggest a three-hour coaching package, if you will. And that involves uh, an initial symptom questionnaire uh, regarding sort of some anthropometrics as well as what symptoms and injuries they've had and what, what treatments they've had for those, if any. The second piece involves us um, analyzing videos. So I request videos um, from various uh, operating procedures that they or surgeries that they do really just just taken on your iPhone and it's really just capturing sort of, you know, what the surgeon is doing, various positions. Um, I ask for their most ergonomically challenging procedure, but also whatever else they want to provide. And then the ergonomist and I evaluate those separately. Uh, and then we actually go through them with the surgeons um, in one of the sessions and offer specific feedback related to that. Again, all in a model of um, empowering the surgeons to see what they're doing and uh, how they could align better with ergonomic best practices in terms of how they're setting things up, what they're doing during the case. It's amazing to me to see sort of that discovery that the surgeons have, because even though we think we might be paying attention to our posture. When you look at your own photos and videos taken by somebody else, it becomes really apparent that even those surgeons who thought they were, you know, pretty good about their ergonomics and paying attention to their posture were, were surprised that um, 
they still had a long way to go, you know, and I'm by no means, you know, perfect and there yet. And that's the thing, right? We are surgeons. There are going to be times that we're going to be assuming awkward postures. The key is to keep it minimal and then to make sure that as many other people working in this field, you'll hear them say, you know, treat yourself like an elite athlete. An athlete doesn't go in to uh, their sport or uh, uh, job without appropriate training. And then they have a team, physical therapists, um, massage therapists, um, coaches, et cetera, to help them function at the top of their game. That's the idea behind this sort of coaching. And really it's empowering surgeons to see what's going on and how they could um, change how they're doing things to help their practice. And remember those of us working in academic practice, this is also an opportunity for us to model what we're doing for the next generation, right? If we pay attention to this and say, this is how you should do this, this will prevent your injuries, this will prevent you from being how I am right now, there's nothing more powerful than that. And it's way more useful than saying, stand up straight, right? We're giving them tangible things to do. The third piece of the coaching um, is that we then do sort of a, an evaluation several weeks down and seeing what things have been implemented, where there were barriers. You know, it's not meant to provide specific treatment. You get that from your physical therapists and, you know, physicians, et cetera. This is an ergonomist and another surgeon's perspective. And the, the best feedback we've gotten about the coaching actually is that I think people didn't realize that it was going to be initially maybe both of us and what they realized with that, that was the best part because you can bring an ergonomist into the OR, uh, but a lot of them are not familiar with working with surgeons and postures and what we can and cannot do uh, in surgeries. Um, those that are, you know, there are few and far between, not everybody has access to an ergonomist, but with video coaching and, and sharing videos, we can bring an ergonomist to you, right? You also have the perspective then of a surgeon who can translate the ergonomist speak into, yeah, I don't think they can do that, but I may not do the specific kind of surgery my client is doing, but I can bring the principles to them. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think people find uh, valuable. And uh, obviously they can do more sessions, but at a minimum, I think three sessions is a good place to get people started. Yeah. That's such a great point too, about how, you know, we are in some ways like elite athletes, you know, it's our mind, it's our body, it's all the things that we're doing. Um, and having this resource is just invaluable. And so they can find you, it looks like at surgicalergonomics.com. And right. I also pulled up the site here of societyofsurgicalergonomics.org. And I will put both of these contacts on the show notes so people can know where to find you. And are there any other last things that you would add to everything you had so far? I mean, everything you had is just so extremely helpful and something that we just never, I don't remember paying attention to it until now that I'm getting older and starting to think maybe I should, but any other last thoughts you would have? Uh, sure, absolutely. Thank you uh, for that, Amy. Um, I will say that, you know, one of the things that the one of the missions of the society part of things is remember that other piece I said, right, we can do all, what we can as surgeons, but we're, we as a profession, I think we've forgotten how to advocate for ourselves. And the biggest thing is sort of the environment that we work in, right, that's ergonomics as well. So instrument design, 
uh, operating room table design, step design. Uh, I've been asked, why don't we have steps that go up and down like the OR table so they can be customized? Why is it only a certain height? You know, so if you're asking those questions and you have ideas, you have a bioengineering background or not, do, do check out the society website and join, become a member. We need you. We've tried to flatten the hierarchy in this society. You don't have to serve your time before you get to be you know, a contributing member. You can join any committees. And we've, we're just launching a new committee. It's going to be called the Industrial Relations Committee. And really the hope here is to work with industry right from the design level uh, and not after the instruments hit our ORs and we find that you know, we can't work with them, let's say as female surgeons or, uh, or that they weren't designed with ergonomics in mind. We wanna be involved as surgeons from that level. And they, industry is keen to make that happen. You know, they, I think are often not aware. We think we're giving feedback to, to the reps, but remember these are sales reps. They may not necessarily have contact or have taken the information back to their design teams and the design engineers. So one of the big missions of the society, aside from you know, the education and being the hub of all things surgical ergonomics is to really bridge that gap uh, between industry and surgeons and um, uh, instrument design so that we can move the needle. And I don't know, maybe one day the society will be obsolete. I love we'll it. We put ourselves out of business. <laughs> I just, I got so excited about an adjustable step. I mean, how has no one thought of this? <laughs> so, and, and I've been asked these things by residents and medical students. And my response to them is, I don't know, but come join the society and maybe you can help us figure this out. I love so. it. And Dr. Lal, I think, you know, overall, this has been so helpful, something that hasn't really occurred to us, but I think, you know, just knowing your story and even just that aspect alone of saying, hey, if you see a gap, let's help, let's help fill it and we'll help you do it. I mean, all those things are really so phenomenal and, and so valuable for everyone here too. So I greatly appreciate your time. I think so many people are going to benefit from this and I'll make sure to put your contact information from your website and also um, the society's website and congratulations for all that you've done. What a remarkable journey. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Vertiz. And I have to say, I've, uh, I think your journey uh, mirrors mine, you know, seeing that there's a gap and starting the boss series of tutorials and um, podcasts and webinars. So pleasure meeting you. And thank you again for having me here today. And uh, I look forward to uh, our ongoing uh, communication and keeping in touch. Likewise, and I'm happy to help in any way that I can. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye. Find out more information about the Boss Business of Surgery series at bosssurgery.com.